Thank you, Sam. Folks, if you keep Mark's Gospel handy, we're, we're going to be looking at that passage, but uh, not only that passage, but a few more today. So have it open there for you and handy. The question that we're thinking about today is this question, who is Jesus? If we get a person's identity wrong, there's a good chance we're going to relate to them in a, a wrong way. And to help you understand what I mean by that and how important that might be, I thought we'd watch a, a very short clip from the movie Notting Hill. So the clip we're about to watch is part of a, a dinner party um, where Anna Scott, the most famous actress in the world, has unexpectedly uh, arrived at this dinner party as a guest. So the other guests, as they arrive and as they encounter her, are all amazed and shocked. It's Anna Scott, the most famous actress in the world. But we're going to see a very short clip where another character, Bernie, arrives. And he doesn't know that it's Anna Scott, the most famous actress in the world. And because he doesn't know her identity, he doesn't relate to her in the right way. So we'll watch that wee clip. Tell us if we can get that out. Um, Anna. What do you do? I'm an actress. Oh, it's brilliant. What do you do? I'm actually in the stock market myself, so uh, not really similar fields. Though, um, um, I have done the old bit of amateur stuff. Um, uh, P.G. Woodhouse, uh, farce, all that, you know. Careful there, Becca. <laughs> Always imagined it's a pretty tough job, though, acting. I mean, the wages are a scandal, aren't they? They can be. I see friends from university. Clever chaps. Been in the business longer than you, but scraping by on seven, eight thousand a year. Yeah, it's no life. What sort of acting do you do? Films, mainly. Oh, splendid. Oh, well done. How's the pay in movies? Mm. I mean, last film you did. What do you get paid? Fifteen million dollars. Right. So that's. Fairly good. Right, I think we're ready. Uh-huh. If you don't get the identity of a person right, you won't relate to them in the right way. That's what we want to think about today. We want, with Mark's help, to get the identity of Jesus Christ right so that we do uh, try to relate to him in the right way. Last week we saw that Mark starts his book with, with these words, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. So Mark's saying that this message um, that he wants to share is the good news about Jesus, God's only chosen king. And it's quite a claim. And today we're going to see that Mark moves on from there and he backs up that claim by providing evidence in the, the first two chapters of his gospel, piling up evidence for who Jesus is. We're going to look at five ways in which he does that, or five pieces of evidence that, that point to this conclusion that Jesus really is God's only chosen king. So it'd be great if you had Mark's gospel open for you and, and flicked with me. We're going to be moving pretty quickly, and you'll, you'll see that. Um, so let's begin in chapter 1, verse 21. Mark tells us there what happened one day when Jesus went to the synagogue. Mark 1, beginning to read at verse 21. They went to Capernaum, 
And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So there's other guys who are teaching, these teachers of the law, but Jesus' teaching is different. His teaching rings through, it carries a power. They're, they're just rehashing the old teachings, they're repackaging, they're commenting on what the previous teachers have said, but not Jesus. He preaches his own material and with a very real power. There's a sense here that people are starting to hear God's words when Jesus speaks, and they're very struck by that. So the first piece of evidence that Mark gives us about the identity of Jesus is that Jesus has power to teach. I want to pause here for a second. The idea of Jesus being a great teacher is not one that we're unfamiliar with. And actually a lot of people in our society uh, would probably subscribe to that. Even people who don't believe or wouldn't want to come to church would say, yeah, Jesus Christ, he's well known as a great teacher. But if that's all that we know about Jesus, then we have to say that we're operating with a very partial kind of a knowledge. It's a bit like the knowledge you would have of a colleague in work. If you only ever interacted with them in one sphere, and maybe some of us have relationships in our workplaces that are like that, we only know what our colleague is like uh, behind the computer screen, wearing those work clothes, doing those particular types of tasks. We don't know what they're like when they're engaged in their hobbies, and when they're with their families and friends, um, and when they're on a night out. Mark doesn't want us to have this one-dimensional view of Jesus. He, he won't really allow us to say, yes, Jesus Christ is a good teacher, and leave it at that. And so he moves on and tells us a lot more about Jesus. Straight after he tells us about Jesus preaching in the synagogue, Mark tells us what happens when he leaves the synagogue. So if you, you look along with me, Mark 1, 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hands and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on. So here's a second piece of evidence. The same guy who has power in his teaching has power to heal people. One touch of his hand and the fever is cured. Now if you read on in the Gospels, taking more time than we can today, you'll see that this isn't an isolated incident. There are probably around about 30 different healing incidents recorded in the different Gospels where people were telling us about Jesus. Whenever Jesus came to town, deaf people signed up to iTunes, blind people took Netflix subscriptions, Lame people ran down to the platform. Lepers started doing skin cream efforts. Jesus Christ had power to bring physical healing. It's astonishing to, to consider that some of these things may have happened. I think for some of us that's a bridge we need to cross in our minds. 
It is astonishing and unbelievable because we don't know people who can do this kind of thing. It only becomes believable if God has intervened in human life and has come among us in the shape of this moment. A couple of pieces of evidence there. But, but there's more. Jesus wasn't just a teacher. Let's look very quickly at another context. I'm going to move this radio mic and see if it can stop making that noise. There we go. Let's look at another context. Mark chapter 4. If you flick to that passage with me. Beginning to read at verse 35. Mark tells us here about a time when Jesus calmed the storm. Mark 4, verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, this must have been quite a storm. Bear in mind that some of these guys in the boat are experienced fishermen. And we're talking about quite a small lake that they would have known inside out. So if they're in danger, if they have a sense that they're in danger of their lives, this is, this is not a good moment. This is, um, I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you are traveling or some other place where you're in danger and you wonder if this is the moment where it's over for you. That's what's happening here for these disciples. So they know that he has power to teach, they know that he has power to hate people, but the question now is a different one. Do you care? That's the question. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And then what happens is amazing. Jesus gets up, he rebukes the wind, we're told in verse 39, quiet, be still, the wind dies down and it's completely calm. Do you see what's happening here? Mark's building up a case to show us that Jesus has power in his words, power to heal, and now he's adding another very substantial layer. He's saying that Jesus has power over nature too. I love the way this story plays out. I didn't really notice this until I was looking at it for today, but it's, it's all about the disciples being terrified. They're terrified at the start of the story and at the end, but in very different ways. They're terrified at the start of the story because they think they're going to die in a storm. And they're terrified at the end because they're thinking, who is that? But you would be. You would be if you were in a company of somebody who speaks to a storm of stuff. Something quite amazing going on here. Who is this, they ask themselves, and suppose that's the question we're trying to address here today. The answer that, that Mark is, is suggesting is that this is none other than God in human flesh. It's only the person who created it all who could have the power over nature that Jesus demonstrates here. 
That was quite something, but uh, the disciples witnessed even more stuff, and we're going to keep rolling on today. They witnessed something even more astonishing. If you look with me at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, we'll pick our way through this story. We'll begin at verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Well, we're told that Jairus is a, a big player in his community. The sort of guy doesn't spend a lot of time on his knees in public. But here, here is flat in his face, and we see why in verse 23. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus, My little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. I know because I know some of the families in the, the church here that some of us know what it is to have a loved one in danger of their lives or, or a child. So you can imagine Jairus' relief when, when Jesus comes into town. He, he knows Jesus' reputation. Jesus can heal anything. So this is a story heading in a very good direction. Mark tells us then of an incident that happened on the way to Jairus' house, but we're not going to spend any time on that today. We're going to keep moving on to verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter, they said, why bother the teacher anymore? So these guys call Jesus teacher, they know who he is. Let's assume that they know not just about his teaching, but about his healing, and about his power over nature. But by this stage, they know something else too. They know that the girl's dead, and they know that it's too late. He knows all very well. He could be the best doctor and surgeon in the world. But this girl's dead. We don't need Jesus anymore. Is that you? Listen to Jesus, verse 36. Over here, they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus does a very weird thing here. He ignores what they say about the girl being dead. It's as though, it's as though the message that these men bring is just like a, a detail. Oh, by the way, she, she's dead. Oh, that's all right. We'll keep going. Look at what happens next, verse 37. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When he came to the home of Jairus, the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child isn't dead, but still. But they laughed at Jesus didn't get the wrong end of the stick here. He, he knew that this girl was dead. But the point that he's making is, it'll take about as much out of him to, to raise this girl from the dead as it would take for me 
to get my kids out of bed in the morning? Yeah, she's asleep. I'm going to wake her. Look at verse 4. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said, Talitha which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. <coughs> Do you see how often Jesus has to say at the end, or Mark, sorry, has to say at the end of Jesus' story that people were completely astonished? I could be any other way. This is, this is incredible, outrageous stuff. Jesus, we're told, has power over death. And I wanted to pause there for a second this morning because, again, from personal experience and also from my experience of being a pastor in a, in a group of people like this, I know that this matters to us. If it doesn't matter yet, it will matter at some point this question about death and whether there's anybody stronger than death. Because it seems to me that this incident and this picture that Mark is painting of Jesus gives us all a question to consider. Knowing that Jesus Christ is stronger than death, do I want to live my life and go forward with it? You'd think that saying, get up to a dead girl is the the craziest thing that Jesus could say, or the most controversial thing. But it's not. Mark tells us uh, in, in chapter 2 of his gospel, in that passage we read earlier, of something that Jesus said that got even more of a reaction. So if you turn with me to chapter 2 of Mark's gospel. Chapter 2, the, the passage which we read just a few moments ago. Whenever you're a preacher, you get used to some pretty weird interruptions. It won't happen that often, but you can have some good ones. We had a pigeon a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember that. And although it was flying around, there was a moment where I had lost sight of it. It was behind me, and it just put its wings together, and I, I was oh, terrified. Stuff can happen whenever you're uh, in a public gathering. And, and this story starts with that kind of feeling, because Jesus is in a house. He's teaching, and guess what? Guys just rip a hole in the roof. You would notice that, and it's kind of like, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd notice that. Big hole, all the dust and plaster, whatever the roof was made of, just landing in on top of you if you were inside uh, listening that day. And then this poor guy comes down. In verse 5, notice the first thing that Jesus says to him. Some your sins are forgiven. It's one of those moments where you just think, do you know, do you know whenever you're in a conversation with somebody or you're trying to relate to somebody and you think, ah, they just didn't get me. They don't know what's on their mind. They don't know what's important. Like, this is classic. Jesus look here. He's not always practical, today. Good teacher can do some good things, but 
Jesus, the guy's legs don't work. That's why he's on the mat. That's why his friends have carried him. That's why they put a hole in the ceiling and let him down. What are you doing? Talking to him about his sins. What is Jesus doing? Talking to him about his sins. Jesus is talking to this guy about his sin because he knows that this is a bigger problem than his paralysis. Before he does anything with the guy's legs, he wants to help him with his biggest problem of all. To, to understand what's going on here, we need to pause just for one second to think about what, what sin is. Sin isn't just doing the wrong things. Sin is to have a wrong orientation in our lives. It's to say to our God, our Creator God, the one who gave us life, that although you give me life, and although my life should be lived in a wonderful relationship with you, I'd prefer just to go my own way, thanks. I'd prefer it if I live my life my way rather than your way. That's, that's the essence of sin, individual actions tend to be symptoms of that way of life. Jesus knows that whenever we live like that, it breaks our relationship with God. And he knows that that's a far bigger problem than any physical ailment we might have. So that's why he begins where he lives. And he focuses on this man's sin before his legs. When Jesus says to the guy, your sins are forgiven, the religious leaders go mad. It's quite funny. If you ever think that Jesus is a religious guy or that he has a lot of support in the churchy guys of his day, read the gospel sometime. It's like the only people Jesus fights with are religious people. And here's one of the, the big bones of contention. They go mad because they know that if sin is ignoring God, then only God can forgive it. Jesus, what are you doing saying that you can forgive sin? They're taking for granted that Jesus must be lying. But Jesus knows what they're thinking. So look at verse 10 there. He says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus Christ wants to heal body and soul, the whole person. You would never settle for healing us physically until he's healed the gulf that there is between us and God. The whole point of Jesus healing this guy on this occasion is to prove his identity. They were saying, the religious leaders were saying, you can't say that, you can't say you can forgive sins because only God can do that. And Jesus gives them a big question to take them with. By doing a miracle in front of their eyes, he sends them home for Maybe, maybe he does have the right to forgive sins. 
Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Next week we're going to see that Jesus said that this is why he came. That this is his purpose. His mission is to save sinners. We started this morning by saying that if we get somebody's identity wrong, there's a good chance that we will relate to them in the wrong way. Mark wants us to be sure that we don't get the identity of Jesus Christ wrong. And that's why he tells us these stories, these incidents from the life of Jesus. He's given us these at least five pieces of evidence that point to the real identity of Jesus. We've seen his power and his authority to teach, power to heal, power over nature, power over death, power to forgive sin. So who is Jesus? Well, Mark told us last week at the start of his gospel, and he's building his case this week in these stories and incidents. Mark believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lives in God's world, in God's way. His words and his actions are the very actions of God among us. Mark believes that Jesus is God's chosen king. Folks, if that's who Jesus is, then there's a question for each one of us. How am I relating to Jesus Christ? Let me pray. Jesus Christ and who he is and how you're related to him.